If you have a Bible, would you go to Luke chapter 11? Luke chapter 11. If you have it on your phone or actually in your hands, we'll have it on the screen as well. Um, as you're turning there, I heard, I read one of the coolest stories I've ever read and one of the most disturbing stories I've ever read this week. And it took place in a city known as Strasbourg, Germany. Anybody ever been to Germany or know of Strasbourg, Germany? Way to go. So Strasbourg is a city that's located on the border of France and Germany right along the Rhine River. Now here's what you need to know. About 500 years ago, this July, there was a woman known simply as Frau Trophia. And Frau Trophia, one day, felt the urge to step into the street without music and begin dancing. I've never felt that urge. And she did. She started to dance in the middle of town, and the, the, the strange thing was she didn't stop. In fact, she began to dance and kept dancing for about six days. And the only reason she would stop was when she grew so exhausted that she actually collapsed and then slept for a while and then woke back up and said, i got to keep dancing, and she continued to dance. Now, that's the strange thing. The stranger thing is that in just a week's time, 34 others had joined the dance party, 34 others. In about a month, there were about 400 dancers in the streets of Strasbourg and no music. While this may sound fun to those of you who are capable dancers, I am not, the problems began to emerge when people actually started to die from heart attacks, strokes, or exhaustion because of the dancing. One report I read said that about 15 people were dying per day. Now, strange, stranger, here's the strangest part of this series of events were all the theories and the prescriptions that started to emerge as to why this was happening. And they, they had no idea and they couldn't figure it out. And what happened is that the disease throughout the next several years began to spread to about seven other cities along the Rhine River in the medieval ages. And, and at this time, doctors would actually prescribe what they called bleeding treatments. And it was as fun as it sounded. They considered the things inside of you bad and they would cut to let those things out. But in this case, they said, this is not what we think is something inside. This is either a curse or something demonic, so we just need to let people get it out. And they actually began to build a dance hall and to build a platform stage and hire paid musicians so that people could simply continue dancing. The reality is this. Marathon runners couldn't have lasted as long as some of these dancers did in the midst of Strasbourg in this dancing epidemic. And to this day, there's no clear explanation as to why this happened. And I'm so fascinated by this story, right? Like, this is so curious to me. And, I, and it's just, it, it's disturbing in the sense that somewhere, maybe in the air or the waters around me, there are little bacteria that could invade my brain and suddenly convince me that I'm capable of dancing publicly. I'm not. Like, that's, that's the case. And, and, and even to go farther, to do something like that to the very point of death. I'm also concerned because I think this story tells us a deeper truth about the nature of our lives that I want you to grab onto today. You're gonna to hear me say this a lot, but this is the thing I want you to grab onto. You, can, you can't be living on the outside if you're dying on the inside. You can't live on the outside or, or convince everybody that you're alive on the outside while you're doing, dying on the inside. And I, I want you to think about that because Mrs. Trophia and hundreds of others literally walked into the streets conducting an act of human culture that only signifies life and joy, right? That's what they were carrying out. And I'm not someone who has ever enjoyed dancing, but I have watched people who enjoy dancing, and I'm like, that looks fun. I will never be capable of what they do, but that looks fun. And, 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 and I see that, and it's only about life, but the very act of dancing in this story was actually 
killing them. You can't live on the outside while you're dying on the inside. We, we know this to be true intuitively. Many of you have lived this. Have you ever been getting ready for, for date night? Special someone, husband, wife, significant other. You got a great date plan. Maybe you're getting ready to go out with friends and so you've been looking forward to it. You've got a babysitter for more than an hour so you don't have to go to McDonald's. You've got like all this stuff lined up. You're ready to go. You're getting ready. And what happens? About 20 minutes before your friends show up, you get into a fight. You ever been there? None, none of you? You're all good Christians? Well, I'll tell you about my experience. So about 20 minutes before you get into a fight, and it's not just a, a, a skirmish, like it's a fight fight, and, and you start yelling and shouting, and you're using the words you tell your kids not to use, and you've got, you've got like all this stuff going on, and then there's a knock at the door. And what happens? Hey, it's date night. Happy face. Here we go. How are you? We're great. But in reality... You didn't have time to fight the fight you needed to fight. Welcome to the dance epidemic where we try to live on the outside, but we're dying on the inside. I, I think all over uh, us as humans today, we understand this dance epidemic at different levels in our lives because every single day, many of us try convincing the world that our outsides are okay and our insides are actually dying. Maybe it is your marriage. Maybe it's the sense of loneliness that you walk around with all the time. Maybe it's the sense of, uh, of anger, the frustration that you constantly have, or, or this guilt and shame that you carry because you know the way you're living isn't honoring to God, or the fear that you have at all times, or you're grieving to an extent that you just, you just can't get rid of it. Whatever it is, you're convincing the world, trying to convince the world that you're alive and you're truly dying. For the past several weeks, we've been in this series called What Would Jesus Undo? What are the things that we learn when we look at Jesus' life and his teachings and the stories of Christ that we see him actually stepping up to and saying, this is not what I intended. Let's pick this apart. Let's deconstruct this so I can help you understand what I really do mean, what I really am talking about, what this is really all about. And I told you last week, we, we, we're gonna spend the next couple weeks in this passage in Luke 11, where Jesus is actually confronting the religious system of his day. He's speaking to a group of religious leaders, the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, if you ever want to remember anything about Pharisees, they were concerned with purity. Pharisees wanted to be pure. The Sadducees, the difference in the Sadducees, they didn't believe in resurrection. Any VBS students, that's why they were sad, you see. That's how I remember that. The Pharisees were all about purity. They were, they were so interested in what, what God had and how God could make them holy. And, and here's what happens when we read the Gospels, the books about Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We start to understand the stories of who Jesus was. And we often see things that Jesus said or did, and we see them in different ways because the writers of those books, most scholars believe, wanted to emphasize certain things or give us certain pictures of who Jesus was. So in Luke 11, we see Jesus at this dinner, and here's what happens in verse 37. When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in and he reclined at the table, but the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. And I explained last week, this was about a ceremonial washing. Jesus probably did wash his hands. He wasn't unclean. You can still love Jesus. Like, that's not the thing. But it was a second washing that was ritualistic, that was very religious, and the Pharisee's actually judging Jesus because of that. So I wanna look at what Jesus says in response. And I want to look at it in the book of Luke, but I also want to look at it in the book of Matthew because I think it gives us a full picture of what's happening. Look at verse 43. Jesus confronts the Pharisees. Here's what he says. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. He says, you Pharisees, you love the places of honor. 
You love having 3,000 friends on Facebook. You love getting notification after notification that people are notifying you that they notice you. Don't we love to be notified that we're noticed? Isn't that great? They love it, and you love the best seats, the front row. Apparently nobody here does. You love those places. He says you love that. But then he says this. Woe to you, because you are like unmarked graves, which people walk over without knowing it. So just hang on to this phrase, unmarked graves. We're going to explore that. But in Matthew 23, we see a similar statement. I want you to see this. Here's what Jesus says. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs. You're going to underline that. Hang on to that. Whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. So I want to pause because I think those phrases, unmarked graves, whitewashed tombs, are really important for us to understand. They have this, this idea that we've got to unpack a little bit. And we need to unpack it by looking at a little bit of the Old Testament, just three verses from everybody's favorite book, Numbers. No cheers. Okay, Numbers. Here's what it says in Numbers 19, verse 11. Whoever touches a human corpse will be unclean for seven days. And walking around going, gross, gross, gross. Verse 14. This is the law that applies when a person dies in a tent. Anyone who enters the tent and anyone who is in it will be unclean for seven days. And then verse 16. Anyone out in the open who touches someone who has been killed with a sword or someone who has died a natural death or anyone who touches a human bone or a grave will be unclean for seven days. So for the Jewish people, here's the understanding of their law, their religious law. Death in the body, a corpse of any kind, was classified as unclean. And unclean equaled contagious. If you were a corpse, I'm glad you're not. If you were a corpse and someone touched you, you made that person unclean. I want to give you an example of this. About 10 years before Jesus began preaching in 20 AD, the son of Herod, a man named Antipas, built a Roman city called Tiberias. Now, Tiberias was a beautiful city. If there was anything that the family of Herod could do, they knew how to build, right? So Tiberias had these, these beautiful shops lining the street, and they had a, a gorgeous palace, probably an amphitheater. They even had a spa bathhouse. In the first century, a spa bathhouse is a big deal, okay? The problem was for Tiberias, for the city of Tiberias, no one wanted to move there that was Jewish. Why? Because when Tiberias was built, it was built on an ancient, unmarked cemetery. So for the Jews, they thought, we can't live in this city because if we live in this city, we're touching the graves, which will make us perpetually unclean. So the only way Antipas could get people to live there was by offering tax incentives, great, or by threat. About 120 years after that, there was a rabbi named Shimon Bar Yohei, which is a great name if you're having a son, Shimon Bar Yohei. He'd been sentenced to death for studying the Torah under Roman authority. And what happened is that he was sentenced to death, and in order to avoid death, he went into hiding in the caves around Israel. Now, this, this rabbi was so committed to the Torah that what he would do is when he would pray, he would clothe himself and kneel in the dirt. And all the other times he walked around naked because he felt like that was the holy place. It's weird, I know. He was living in a cave for 10 years. Bear with me. When he's finally, after 10 years, pardoned, he receives word, they're gonna let you off, it's okay. He exits the cave and he says in his best Hebrew, I'd like to take a bath. Tiberius has a spa bathhouse. Let's go there. The problem is he shows up and he says, before I can take a bath, I'm a rabbi. I have to ceremonially cleanse the city 
of the corpses. And so he has the bodies dug up and removed and ritually cleanses the entire city. Jews were so committed to this that they would actually, when they buried someone, they would use limestone to paint the grave marker white so that when you were walking through Israel, if you saw the white grave, oh, I'm not going to touch that. I don't want to be unclean. And every year at the rainy season, the white would be removed and they would have to repaint. It was a constant effort simply to avoid the dead parts of of their world. So when Jesus tells the Pharisees that they're like unmarked graves or whitewashed tombs, he's making the same point I am. You cannot live on the outside if you're dying on the inside. Jesus looked at a religious people, the religious people of the day, and he directly and honestly confronts their hypocrisy and their wickedness. He says to them, you can have all the status in the world. Your phone can be blowing up at all times. I don't think he actually said that. You can have all the honor at every great religious gathering, and you can still be dying on the inside. But then he presses the point further. You see, because for Jesus, it's not just about the condition of their own individual insides. It's about what their insides do to the world around them. He says, if you're dying on the inside, there's no way you can bring life to the people around you. You can't do it. Your unwillingness to deal with your own inner death is actually, Jesus says, it's polluting the whole world around you. Now, I feel this. Dad, you ever come, come home from work and had a really, really bad day? And then it's like, I gotta be good dad in this moment. I don't even like the world. How am I gonna like you, right? And it's because the inside of me is going nuts and I'm polluting everything around me. See, he's confronting the religious leaders, the ones who guided the less spiritual people and he's speaking into them to confront their whole system. He's actually undoing their way of thinking. So here's what I wanna ask today. What does this say to us? What does this say to us? What, if I go back to that point, you can't live on the outside if you're dying on the inside. Here's the question I wanna answer for you. How are we dying on the inside? Because I think in many ways, we are. I'm gonna give you three things. Here's the first one. Living life without actually living life. Many of us are dying on the inside because we're trying to live our lives without actually living our lives. We're simply trying to keep the dance dancing. I think many of Many of us have convinced ourselves we're living and we've actually settled for half living. Anybody know the term half-life? Have you ever heard that term? You know what it means? A half-life is actually how they measure radioactive material. See, radioactive material, think about this. Radioactive material is the most potent but powerful material in all the world. And the measurement for it is called a half-life. And the way they measure a half-life is by the time it takes the material to decay to half its power. This just boggles my mind. They're measuring the power of the most powerful thing in the world by how long it takes to decay to where it's not as powerful. Isn't this what many of us do with our lives? Like, don't we think the same way? See, when you're dying on the inside, no matter what the cause, you are measuring your life by half living. You are measuring, your, you, you are functioning under the norm that this is what's normal. And, and uh, if you ever, have you ever met anybody who's like had knee problems for years and years and years and years and years and then they get the surgery and they're like, I didn't know how bad it was. You know that? Or they had eye surgery. I didn't know how blind I was. It's because they function with half-life. This is normal. Many of us do this when it comes to our emotions, our relationships, our spirituality. We are living half-alive. And I want to say to you in a few minutes, I'm going to give you some things that I think are killing us from the inside out. But before I do, before I kind of press into those specific issues, I just want you to hear this. 
It doesn't matter what's killing you. I don't care if it's your sin. I don't care if it's the brokenness caused by others. I want you to hear this first. You were created by the God of the universe to live fully alive. That's the God that created us. God didn't look at his people and go, I formed you out of the dirt. I bent down and I breathed life into your nostrils and I just want you to be mediocre. Like I just want you to be sort of alive most of the time. Like just try not to hate your kids. Good luck. That's not what he said. He said, I want you to be fully alive. How many of you can think of something, some area of life or a job you'd like to do or a hobby or a passion or something you've experienced where in those moments, those spaces and those times, you feel completely and fully alive? You know what that's like, don't you? You know what it's like to give yourself to those things. For me, that, that's, that's my sweet spot, right? My sweet spot is when I get to sit down with young leaders and just coach and think about what is God doing in them and this curiosity they have about how do I live into the things that God has for me. I could have those meetings all day long. Budget meetings, uh-uh. Coaching leaders meetings, yes. The sweet spot is when I get a date night with my wife and we haven't had a fight and we get to go out and we get to dream together and hey, what do you wanna do in five years? Where do you wanna end up in five years? That's where we're like, adoption. Okay, let's go. They're dangerous conversations, but they're so fun. It's the place where I get to sit with my daughters and actually have meaningful conversations about figuring out who they are. What is it for you where you're fully alive? See, all of these places are the places that I feel more alive than ever before. But you know what I notice about the gravitational pull of my life? There's always this pull and this trajectory to end up half living. I have a tendency to drift back to complacency. I go to a rhythm that feels less than meaningful. It feels like I'm not trying to live, I'm trying to survive. Like I'm trying to survive my schedule. Amen, parents? I'm trying to survive my schedule, half living or fully alive. What about your relationships? Are you half living or fully alive? Your job, half living or fully alive? Your relationship with Christ, are you living on a half-life or are you fully alive? You see, I see us making efforts in our lives to keep the dance of our life going. You're, you're building platforms, you're paying the dancers, you're just thinking, I've got a coach for my kid and he's gonna learn this, I've got my schedule, I've got a person backing me up, I've got all this stuff going on and you're dying on the inside. We gotta figure out what that looks like. Here's the second thing that I think is killing us. We're misdiagnosing the disease. We're misdiagnosing the disease. The, about the biggest medical knowledge I have came from House MD. Are you with me? That's about as much as I got. But do you remember the show House? Like the most sarcastic doctor in the world, but he was so good. So good. Right? The problem on every episode of that show was that they were misdiagnosing the disease. They were treating things that were the wrong cause. And often, by misdiagnosing the disease, they were killing the person quicker than if they had treated the right disease. Man, that's the same in our lives, right? I'm telling you today, more than we know it, you and I are blaming silent killers of our hearts and our emotions and our lives that are not actually the real things that are killing us. See, the issue is never just the issue. It's always the issue behind the issue. So we end up blaming a lack of money for the problems in our lives, when in reality, it's deep discontentment. It's the fact that we've never learned to live content with what we have. We blame the pattern of bad relationships in our lives, but in reality, it's the deep loneliness that we've experienced that we can't get over because we've never been healed of that. We blame the problem of our life as the breakdown of my marriage, when in reality, the problem is the deep disgust we have with ourselves. Or we blame the lack of real friendships 
if I just had friends, if I just had this. And the real problem is I'm scared to death to get close to someone else. See, we're misdiagnosing the disease. And I, I wanna say this, in, in all those things, you're either ignoring the real killers or you're letting the death that's already in your life go undiagnosed. And I'm saying to you in this place, in this moment, I don't wanna allow you as your pastor to walk out of here today with a false diagnosis that ends with you silently dying. I, I don't want that on my conscience. I wanna be honest enough with you in this place to say simply to you, most of you, many of you, most, the majority of you, when you walk in here, look really good on the outside. You look really good on the outside, but I've been doing this long enough. I've had as many conversations as I've had with the pastor to know that the majority of us walk in here looking great and dying on the inside. And we're scared to death to let anybody know it. And we're misdiagnosing the disease. See, the, the most beautiful tomb you've ever been to, I was in D.C. with my fifth grader this week, and I got to see all the memorials and all the monuments. But you know what's inside of all those things? Rotting bones. It doesn't matter how good we look. Death is death is death. Today, I, I want to invite you to stop pretending like you're the walking dead and actually experience the resurrection and the life. See, when Jesus shows up to the grave after his friend Lazarus has died, they say, oh, if you'd have been here, he would have lived. And Jesus says to his sister, I am the resurrection. I am the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. You know what that says? If you're looking anywhere else for anything else to bring you life, to give you hope, it's temporary at best. The ultimate resurrection, the ultimate life is only in Jesus Christ. The last thing that I think is maybe killing us from the inside is something that I wanna draw. We've kind of talked at the individual level. So I wanna talk about what's killing us as corporate bodies of believers in Jesus Christ. And it's this, it's, it's that we ignore the contamination of hypocrisy in our churches. That we ignore what hypocrisy actually does to our faith communities. See, I think we have to consider this at the corporate level because this is what Jesus is doing with the Pharisees. He's not looking at one Pharisee and going, hey, I want you to understand, this is why you feel brokenness. This is why you're upset. This is why you're depressed. He's actually looking at their entire system and saying there's some wrong thinking that has infiltrated your entire system. Why did 400 people start dancing in the streets? I have no idea. But systematically, there was something pervasive that needed to be treated. Do you know this is the first time in the history of our country that the church is not the most prominent and dominant way of religious thinking. Do you recognize that? The Christian evangelical church has been, has been pushed to the side as the dominant way of thinking. The rising group is what's called the nuns, N-O-N-E-S. Have you heard this? And the nuns are those, not those in black robes, N-U-N-S, the N-O-N-E-S, who say we have no spiritual affiliation. This is the rising culture. And what I see a lot of times is, is the Christian culture running around going, why, why don't they like us? What's going on? What are we, what, are, uh, what is happening? And we're getting pushed aside and we're mad about it, aren't we? Aren't we angry? Oh, they're pushing, if we just had good politicians, if we just had this, whatever it is. And I wanna say to you, it's hypocrisy that's killing us. My friend's shooting a, a feature-length film, documentary about the word evangelical. You know the word evangelical? Ever heard that word? Anybody know what it means? You know what evangelical means? It actually means good news. It means good news, right? How is it 
that the word good news has actually been so corrupted that when the broader world now hears the word evangelical, it's equated to corruption, to spiritual abuse, to judgment, and to hypocrisy rather than grace and freedom and invitation to love offered in the person of Jesus. I think it's because of this. We've allowed corpse contamination to permeate our pews or our chairs and infiltrate our worship and penetrate our lives together without the true acts of reconciliation, of repentance, and transformation. See, we've allowed the corpses to come in, the hypocrisy that says, oh yeah, I love Jesus. Our whole church loves Jesus. We all, we all love Jesus. Isn't Jesus great? We even sing songs about Jesus. We have books about Jesus. We sell coffee that's labeled Jesus on it. We have all this good stuff about Jesus, and we do all this stuff week in and week out, and everybody goes, well, that's really great. What's your relationship with the person next to you? I can't stand them. We sit on opposite sides of the church because we don't get along. And we think that's okay. We think that we can go forward as Christians proclaiming good news when repentance and reconciliation have not touched our lives. Listen, I I am under no illusion. We're a six-year-old church. I, I am under no illusion that after six years, all of you still like me just as much as you did on day one. I don't I don't believe that. I believe there are there are those of you that I've hurt. There are those of you that that have grown offended and we need reconciliation in that. There are those of you here who who literally can't stand the person across the room or in the first service. You found out they went to that service, so you go to this service. And if they came to this service, you'd move to the other service. See, how how can we expect good news to come from a people who can't coexist for an hour and 10 minutes together? When do we begin to pick up the mantle of reconciliation that Jesus talks about in Matthew 18, that if you have a problem with someone, you go to them and you make it right and that we repent of our sins in that sense. And then there's this thing called transformation. I had a friend in middle school, never forget this, we were out shooting basketball and he said, man, I'm a Christian and I just figured out this really cool thing. And I was like, awesome, tell me about it. And he goes, well, I can, I've, I've been fighting this peer pressure and I, I wanted to cuss and I didn't think I should cuss because I'm a Christian, but I wanted to cuss because I wanted to be cool. And he says, I figured out I can cuss every day. And then at the end of the day, before I go to bed, I can ask Jesus to forgive me and it's all good. Some of you need to laugh because that's a joke. <laughs> See, We laugh at that, but here's the thing. Many of us live our lives with that kind of thinking, thinking, well, I love God and I worship God, but I don't actually need to be transformed by God. I don't actually need to be led out of sin, led out of brokenness by God. And Jesus, in this moment, to these religious leaders, says, woe to you. He's not threatening. He's grieving. He's grieving the brokenness of their lives. He says, you think you're alive. You think that you're whitewashed on the outside and everything in you is rotting. He says, I don't want you to live like that anymore. I always hated the story of Goldilocks and the three bears. I know that's an awkward transition. I didn't know how to transition any better. Actually, in in many ways, I think the majority of kids' stories have a bit of like cryptic creepiness to them, right? Like Little Red Riding Hood truly freaks me out. I just... There's a wolf in the woods, and he eats somebody, and then they kill the wolf. What happens to the grandma? Like, it's just strange. But Goldilocks bothered me probably more than anything. Because you've got this kid who goes around breaking into the homes of a really nice bear family, sitting in their chairs, eating their food, which is a serious issue, and then sleeping in their beds. 
That's strange. That's just a weird story. So there's breaking and entering on the part of a minor. That's, that's okay. That's not my concern. My bigger concern is that Goldilocks functions her life, operates her life based on a way of thinking that I think has infiltrated and permeated every single one of our lives. See, for Goldilocks, the goal of her life is the middle. I just want the middle. I'm going to sit in this chair. Well, this is too tall. This is too short. This one in the middle. This is just right. She goes to the food. This one's too hot. This one's too cold. I just want the middle. I just want it to be lukewarm. Lukewarm is good. She sleeps in the bed. This one's too hard. This is too soft. This one is just right. And I think we could say this for Goldilocks. Mediocrity is the main mode of operation. The middle is the goal. How do I just kind of walk the middle path and be okay? Just meh. That little, what's that emoji? Is it meh? Is that what it is? Meh. Like I'm just, that's just what I want to be. I'm just happy. Meh. It's good. Sounds like a dying cat, right? Friends, I'm tired of us living and existing with the middle being the goal of our lives. I'm so tired of a people that are just complacently floating through life and you kind of hate your job, but it's kind of the best option. You kind of are okay with your family, but you kind of get bored. And you've got all this stuff where it's just the middle is the goal. If we can just find it, it's just right. Yeah, it's good. See, there's a problem with that. I don't want my outside to be whitewashed while my inside is rotting. I want to be fully alive and awake and aware and engaged. I believe that when God created us, he created us to live epic lives, to live lives of destiny and passion and creativity, that you were designed by a God of the universe not to get up on Monday morning going, well, the weekend was fun. Maybe we'll get there in a few days. That's not the way God designed us, that there's more to it. I want to be in a place where the call of Jesus Christ in my life means that I listen to his spirit and I engage the world in the place that he calls me Two, I, I want to be at my kids' soccer practices and play practices and whatever other practices we got to go to on Monday through Friday that they tell me about by text message and I didn't know and now I'm stressed because I got to get there. I want to be in those places going, God, I believe in you as father. Jesus, I believe in you as son, but your spirit is living in me. And there are people here who don't have that spirit in them. So as I'm at this field, God, would you direct me? Would you lead me? Would I believe that God actually has me on mission at the soccer field? Can you imagine can you imagine being on mission at the soccer field, not thinking about how you're going to get dinner and bed and bath and all that stuff that makes you a good parent? What if we actually lived our lives on mission all the time? God, where are you directing me? God, what do you have for me? I want to be in a place where it takes courage, where it takes risks to say, this is what God has called me to, and the only way it's going to happen is if he shows up, because I can't do it on my own. I can't do it on my own. So what do we do about this? I think there's... Ah, I've got so many verses, I'm out of time. I'll share with you one. Second Chronicles 7, there's this verse that God spoke through his, or to his people. And it was a verse dealing with their land and the fact that their land, when their land went through drought and died, here's what he says. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command locusts to devour the land or send a plague among my people. He says, there are times where you will be dry. There are times where the very thing that holds you up, the inside of who you are, will start to die. He says, when that happens, verse 14, if my people who are called by my name, and by the way, circle if, that's a big word. 
If my people who are called by name, my, my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. What if your land is your life? What if your land is your life? What if you're walking through a place where your land, your life feels dry and dying and drought-filled and you're going, God, I don't know what to do. How am I gonna come back to life? The hypocrisy has overwhelmed me. I go to church and I worship you, but then I've got all this junk in my life that I'm just continuing to commit these sins. I'm carrying the guilt, I'm carrying the shame. I've got fear, I've got brokenness. My marriage is falling apart. Whatever all these things are, God, what is it? And God says, if you will humble yourself, if you will turn from your wicked ways, and you will seek who God is, then I will hear, but I won't just hear. I'll forgive and I'll heal your land. I'll heal your land. So let's pray together.